If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be spending our time today in this uh, letter that Paul wrote to essentially his apprentice, Timothy. Once again, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we are going to start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 14. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has, been dis- who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And all of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed. Because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen. It was the night before uh, my first day of high school. I was downstairs, and our, our phone rings. Uh, my mother answers the phone, and she says, it's, it's for you. And on the other end of the line uh, was a student named John. He was a junior at the time. He was going into his junior year. Now, John was a popular kid. He was well-known in our school, well-known in the youth group. And I, I couldn't, when he told me who it was, I couldn't help but wonder, why is an upperclassman like him calling a pathetic freshman like me the night before my first day of high school. Um, I had known John from church for years, but we were merely acquaintances. There was no reason for him to call me. And I get on the line, and the first thing he says to me is, Mike, a couple of buddies of mine and I are going to McDonald's for breakfast tomorrow morning before school. What time should I pick you up? It's remarkable Uh, And I was amazed, and I think the phone dropped. I was just in shock, because that just doesn't happen, uh, that a junior and upperclassman would reach out to a freshman. Um, It was such a simple gesture, gesture, but I can honestly say that that one moment was a pivotal time that had a dramatic impact on my life. And it made me realize, here is an upperclassman trying to reach out to me, As a freshman, he's taking the time to invest in me. 
Uh, just this past weekend, I had the privilege of attending uh, my best friend's surprise 25th birthday. Um, and at the party, him and, and another guy were, were speaking about a ski trip that they went to as an underclassman, and I, I was the upperclassman. It was my turn. Um, and at the party, they are just recalling several conversations that I had with them that were, that were impactful and life-changing and pivotal. I don't even remember these conversations that I had with them, uh, but something I said must have resonated. It must have stuck. Uh, because all of these years later, over a decade later, they're still talking about it. And, and I don't share that story uh, to boast with you uh, about anything I've done, uh, but to, to merely show you that John, who reached out to me as a freshman, didn't even know what he was doing at the time, reached further generations of students down the line. We see that he had an impact not just on me, but those who came after me. In fact, if you were to go back to my youth group, uh, to this very day, there are student leaders that are student leaders because of this lineage, because the guys that I reached out to, they then in turn reached out to other underclassmen, and then they in turn reached out to other underclassmen to the point where there are still student leaders that are being affected because John called me the day before my first day of high school and said, we're going to McDonald's and I want you to be there with me. In this passage that we just read a few moments ago, we find Paul demonstrating the very same principle, this idea of passing on, um, passing on a legacy to Timothy. Uh, At the point where Paul wrote this, um, it was a very dark hour for him. It was a very dark place. Um, he he, He knew that his work was done, uh, later on in the letter, you can tell that he, he knows his life is coming to an end. Uh, he is imprisoned, most likely chained in a t- dark, cold dungeon in Rome. Uh, and, and when he stood trial, um, most of his friends abandoned him. He mentions all of this in his letter that when given the opportunity to stand by my side, my friends have abandoned me. And so this was... A dark hour. Paul knew that his time was coming to an end. And so, in a few weeks, our seniors are going to be at their commencement, their their graduation ceremony, and somebody is most likely going to stand up and speak, the valedictorian, and they're going to deliver a valedictory, a farewell speech, a goodbye address. The book of 2 Timothy is essentially Paul's valedictory. It's his farewell address. And even though this was a dark hour for Paul, notice that his concern is not for himself, but for Timothy and the advancement of the gospel message. Of all the things that Paul could have mentioned in his farewell address, these are probably the things that Paul feels as most important. And so as we dive in here, if you were to look at the first five verses of Second um, Timothy, we actually see uh, Paul's relationship with Timothy. Paul's relationship with Timothy. It's, it's that of a special one. And how do we know? Verse 2, he addresses him as a dear son. A dear son or a dearly beloved son. Now Timothy isn't his biological son, but he is very much in a sense his spiritual son. He has taken Timothy under his wing. For a long time now. And he addresses him as as dear son. We see that mentor-pupil relationship. 
Um, one of the joys that I have as a youth pastor is forming these bonds, um, just the, the bond that's formed between student and teacher. And let me tell you, graduation, when that comes around, it's always bittersweet for me. It's always bittersweet for me because I'm so excited about what's to come for our seniors, but I'm so sad for, for them to leave our ministry. Um, know that if your child is a regular attender of youth activities, they are very near and dear to my heart. They're very near and dear to my heart. And we see that Timothy is near and dear to Paul. We see that. Uh, verse 3, day and night, what does he say? I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers dear and with a clear conscience says, night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Timothy is one that comes to mind to Paul when he's praying. I've found that the, the people I pray for the people that I pray for most often, I would say, are the ones that I'm close with. It's my friends, it's my family, it's my immediate family, it's my extended family, it's my students. He's constantly remember Timothy. Now, we should be praying for everybody. We should be praying for our enemies, but doesn't that just happen naturally, that you pray for the ones that you love? Paul constantly remembers Timothy in his prayers. Verse 4, he says, I long, I long to see you, Timothy. Why? So that... I may be filled with joy. I want to see you so that I can be filled with joy. Paul is explaining here that when he sees Timothy, that is exciting for him. Kind of like meeting up with an old friend. The type of friend that when you meet up, even though there may be years that have passed by or months or many, many days, you meet up and it's like you've picked off, picked up right where you left off. This is what it's like for Paul and Timothy. And perhaps as Paul is nearing death, he's just reflecting. He's reflecting on his relationship with Timothy and saying, my time is done here. What, is, what does my life look like? What does my life look like right now? And he's, and he's reflecting. And then we come to verse 5, and Paul includes a very important phrase, a very important verse that I don't want to just gloss over. He first tells um, how he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. His sincere faith. This is the real deal. He's saying, Timothy, I know that you know the gospel. And not only do you know the gospel, you practice it. You put it into action. The word for sincere, when he says sincere faith, what he's basically saying is, you are not a hypocrite. You are not a hypocrite. You practice what you preach. The sincere faith didn't start with Timothy, though. It actually lived in his grandmother Lois first, and then his mother Eunice. And once again, this is important. We don't want to miss this, because it's easy to just read over that quick. But Timothy comes from a line of Christ followers. He comes from a line of Christ followers. Second Timothy 3.15, we actually see that he was brought up under Scripture. From infancy, it says, from his childhood, he was brought up hearing the gospel, hearing God's word. Every morning before school, from the time I was a little guy in kindergarten, all the way up until the point I graduated, every single day before I went on the bus, I would walk in to my mother's room, and she would pray for me. And she would pray for me. And most days when I walked in, she would be sitting there with her Bible open on her lap. I don't, I'm not sure if my mom has ever known 
what that meant to me. And more importantly, I don't think she knows how that trained me to value God's word. You have no idea the type of impact that had on me as a little boy. To see my mother ingrained in God's word on a daily basis. Parents, if you want godly children, if you want your children to be godly, the first step is for you to be godly. If you want your children to have a sincere faith, your first step is that you in turn have a sincere faith. You may not know it, and you may not believe it, but your children are watching you. They are watching you whether you want them to or not. And so, what does that look like? What does that look like in your household? How are you training your children up in the ways of the Lord? Are you practicing it yourself? There were many mornings I would go into my mother's room, almost like reluctantly, begrudgingly, because I didn't want to be prayed for. I I don't know why, but it it was an embarrassment. I, I was a little kid. I didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, But there were many mornings I was reluctant, but she persisted. And so if you're a parent sitting here today with a child who every time you want to pray for them or open up the Bible, they start groaning and complaining, don't give up. Don't give up. Because even if it doesn't have an effect now, it may have an effect on the future. The way that you honor and glorify God as a parent is prep work for the gospel. This is why we do child dedications. Just last week, we did child dedications. And it's not so we get a good photo opportunity with our kids. It's not so that we can show off our cute little kids to the rest of the church body. No, the child dedication, why we do them, is so that we can stand up there and together with a cloud of witnesses from the body of the church say, no matter what happens, we will bring up our child in the way of the Lord and his word. Our job isn't to save our children. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to do that. No, our job, though, is to prepare them, to lay a biblical framework, to lay a biblical framework that points our children to Christ and God's Word. And I honestly believe, because I've experienced it for myself, that transformation occurs when you are constantly and consistently exposed to God's truth, exposed to God's word. And frankly, the younger that we're exposed to the truth of the gospel, the better. The power comes from God's word. Our job is merely to present it to them in a God-honoring way and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. And what better way to do that than in your very own home? I used to be envious of those with what I would call radical testimonies. Those that, you know, were so far off the deep end that they were in just entrenched in their sin and the sin of the world. And then Christ miraculously saved them and they've turned over. I used to be jealous of those type of people with what we would call the good testimony. But the more I've grown and the more that I've seen... The happier I am that sin didn't strike me with the amount of force that it could have. And this is accredited to the fact that I had godly parents that didn't want me to be exposed to the power of sin. Yes, 
Sin has separated me from God. Yes, sin still had an effect on me. Yes, I still deserved death. But if you speak in terms of the effects that sin can have on one's life, there are children that have been affected far worse than I ever was. And I'm thankful for that. But all the more the need to reach our children. And it starts in the home. This is the importance of Christian heritage. Timothy was blessed with a mother and a grandmother who loved Jesus and pointed him to him. So in light of that, in light of his sincere faith, Paul gives a reminder to Timothy. First we had Paul's relationship with Timothy on display. Now Paul issues him a reminder in verses 6 through 7. Because of this sincere faith that you have, what does he say? Fan into the flame the gift of God. Fan into the flame the gift of God. Paul himself gives this illustration of fanning into a flame. And why, why do we fan into a flame? If you're building a fire in your house or outside, why do we fan into the flame? To make it come alive, to give it oxygen, to, to keep it going. And so essentially what Paul is doing here, he's referring to Timothy's spiritual gift that was given to him to help him in his ministry, to help him as a pastor in Ephesus. Paul is telling him, continue to fan that flame. Make use of your gift that God has given you. Don't let it die. Make use of your spiritual gifts. And i got to ask the question, how many of us are sitting here today and aren't fanning the flame of our gifts? Aren't fanning the flame of the gifts. We have so many talented people in this room. And frankly, some of us are wasting our gifts. Some of us are wasting our God-given gifts. And I get it. You might be sitting here saying, well, I'm too scared. I'm too intimidated. I'm too apprehensive. I'm too timid. Well, look what Paul says in verse 7. Hey, you know God? That God that gave you that gift? The God that gave you that spiritual gift? Well, he also gave you something else. He gave you a spirit. And this spirit was not one of timidity. It's actually a spirit of love and power and discipline. And so you have no reason to be scared. You say you can't, and God says by the power of of my spirit, you can. You say you can't do it because you're too scared, you're too timid. God says, well, you're right, you can't. But I can, and I can do it through you. And I want to do it through you, and I desire to work through you. And I get it. Sometimes following the will of God is hard and scary. And I think it's meant to be that way so that we're forced to depend on him rather than on our own vices. Last year when we took our students to Chicago, we spent a week training our students how to evangelize to their peers. And I had to leave early uh, to get to a friend's wedding in time that I was a part of, that I I was a groomsman of. And so I'm I'm sitting in the airport, O'Hare Airport, and I am dead set that whoever I'm sitting next to, I am going to share the gospel with them. I was on fire for God after this trip. It was exciting. And, And I am dead set that whoever I sit next to, I am going to strike up a spiritual conversation with them. And let me tell you, I would have loved to be able to come back and say, yeah, I talked to the guy and he's a Christian now. And, you know, praise Jesus. But when it came down to it, I couldn't open my mouth. 
because I was scared, because I was timid. And it, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because God could have used me to reach this man. But due to my fear, the man still may, has, may not have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And this breaks my heart. So fan into the flame of your gifts. There shouldn't be a single Christ follower in this room that isn't serving somewhere on a regular basis. And you might be thinking, well, I know what you're, I, I know what you're thinking. You're probably saying the church is at it again, asking us to serve, asking us to do something. All the church, all they do up there is they get up there and they want us to do all of the work. Can I give you two reasons why you should fan into the flame of this spiritual gifts that you've been given? Can I give you two reasons why you should serve? The first one is you're hurting the body. You're hurting the body. When we, when, when we approach worship as a consumer and say, what can I get out of this? What, what, what's in it for me? How does this make me feel? Am I entertained? Am I fulfilled? Is someone serving me? When you approach the body like that and refuse to contribute your own spiritual gifts, it's like you're purposefully withholding food from the hungry. It's like going to a weak person and saying, I know that you're weak and I can help you, but I won't. You're hurting the body if you don't fan into the flame of God's gift. And then second, not only are you hurting the body, you're also hurting yourself. Serving is not only for the body, but it's also for you. When we don't exercise our God-given gifts, we are looking at God with extreme apathy. It's like telling God, we look to God and we say, I know you've given me gifts, but I don't care. And that's hurting your relationship with God. And John MacArthur, in his commentary, writes this. He says, The fact that every believer has, been divinely has a divinely bestowed gift means that every believer is divinely equipped to do ministry. The fact that every believer has a divinely bestowed gift means that every believer is divinely equipped to do ministry. God has prepared good works for you to do. So fan into the flame. And so because we have this spirit that is a spirit of power, Paul has reminded Timothy for, of that, and now he gives Timothy an invitation. He gives him an invitation. Paul says, you have a spirit that's not timid, so do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of what? To stand by the Lord's side. In fact, it's an invitation for Timothy. It's an invitation to suffer. Look at it. It says it right there. Do not be ashamed, verse 8, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as... Uh, me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. He's inviting Timothy to suffer. And there's two questions that I would have to ask Paul. Well, first is this, how do I embrace suffering? How do, I, how do we embrace it? Verse 8, by the power of God. How do we embrace it? How do we face suffering? By the power of God. Because this power is the same power that saved us. It's the same power that's destroyed death. 
through Jesus Christ. It's the same power that brought you eternal life. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that we have been given through the Spirit to embrace suffering. That's how we embrace suffering, not by our own power, but God's power. And then the second question, why should I? You've told me how I embrace suffering. Why should I embrace suffering? Why go through life suffering? And in verse 12, it's really unique and interesting. Paul says, not only am I suffering for the gospel, but I'm suffering because of the gospel. I'm not only suffering for the gospel, but I'm suffering because of the gospel. The gospel has led me to suffering. And Paul, sitting in a cold dungeon with no friends by his side because they all fled, could be sitting there saying, well, how did I get in this predicament? Maybe if I just played my cards differently, this wouldn't be the case. I would be in different shape or or in better shape. No, Paul knows exactly why he's there, and he wouldn't have it any other way. Why? Why does he embrace it? He says, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he can guard what I have entrusted to him. I know whom I believe, and I know that he can guard what I have entrusted to him. Paul has entrusted his life to Christ, his soul to Christ, and knows that Christ can and will guard it. That word guard is a military term used for someone who would be put in charge of guarding something. Uh, And it was so serious that their life was on the line. Their life was on the line if they weren't able to successfully guard what was entrusted to them. And I think this speaks volumes uh, to Paul's belief that God is faithful with his promises. God is faithful in his promises. And notice he doesn't trust some kind of theological system. He doesn't trust a denomination. He doesn't trust in his emotional experiences. He trusts in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Why do we embrace suffering? Because we know what Jesus has saved us from. We know that there is no amount of suffering in this world that we will ever encounter that is not worth going through to gain the prize that we'll receive in the end. There's no amount of suffering that we can experience that is not worth going through if what God and Christ says is true. And he encourages them, doesn't he? He says, you shouldn't be ashamed because I'm not ashamed. And I'm not ashamed because I know who I've trusted. And I know that he's good on his promises. And I know there's going to come a day um, when I die and the time will come for me to stand before God. And you know what? The check is going to clear. Jesus' sacrifice will be enough. And I am entrusting my life with him, and he will guard it. And so he turns around and comes back to Timothy with a charge. A charge in verses 13 through 14. And we finish our time with this. He says, What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. There's that word guard again. Once again, same word. As God is guarding our life and our soul, we have been entrusted to guard something. And what is it? The good deposit. What is the good deposit? It's God's word. It's the truth of the gospel. Timothy has been entrusted with the truth of the gospel. God's word revealed. And so I have two more questions. The first one is this. Why is this important? Why is this important to guard God's word? 
This past week I went to a conference, and the theme of the conference was trusting the Word of God to do the work of God. In one of the sessions, um, Tim Keller actually was, was speaking, and he, and he actually mentioned Genesis 1, and how God in the very beginning said, let there be light, and then there was light. He didn't say, let there be light, and then they went and like conjured up light. No, the, his word was his action. Let there be light, and there was light. God's word is his work. God's word is his work, and that's why we need to stay fixed into God's word, because once again, I believe transformation occurs by the power of the Spirit when somebody is consistently in God's word. That's why it's important, because through his word is how God works. Second question, why do we need to guard it? Why do we need to guard it? Because it's constantly under attack. Genesis 3, not much long after, The first words in Genesis of the devil are recorded. It's through the crafty serpent. And what are the first words the serpent says? The serpent says, did did God really say? Did God really say that you couldn't eat this fruit from this tree? The serpent challenged God's word. And you know what? It still goes on today. Every single person with a human agenda will look at the scripture and say, does, does God really say that? Does he really say we can't do that? Does he really say that? The word of God is still attacked, yet it still stands because in God's sovereignty, he has used men and women like Paul and Timothy to guard the good deposit faithfully and hand it down to a new generation of Christians. So really, this is all like one big relay race. Some people refuse to take the baton. Some people take the baton and then drop it. Paul is telling Timothy, take the baton that is God's word, hold on to it, guard it, and pass it on. Thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit on our side. He says this. He says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Pass it on from generation to generation and help. You will have help from the Holy Spirit. And this is my heart for the students that come through youth group. That by the end of their time, I could say to them, guard what has been entrusted to you that is the good deposit. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. I don't want them leaving youth group knowing we had fun or that we were really hip or fashionable or cool or that we had good memories. Above all, I want them to leave with God's word written on their hearts and in their minds. And so just as Paul has passed this good deposit on to Timothy, Timothy passed it on to someone else, and some of us probably are sitting here today because they did so faithfully with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we sit at the door of opportunity as a church body, as a congregation. My youth pastor would always say that every Christian needs a Paul and every Christian needs a Timothy. Who's your Paul? Who is pouring into your life? Who is asking you the hard questions? Who is holding you accountable? Who is walking along with you? And secondly, who's your Timothy? At the end of your time, will you be able to look to someone and say, guard the good deposit that I have entrusted to you? Church, we have a wonderful opportunity to continue to pass along this good deposit. And you may be sitting here and thinking, well, How do I find a Timothy? Well, I'm so glad you asked. 
Because we have a ministry here at First Alliance Church that helps you find a Timothy. It's called the Youth Ministry. And it is filled with Timothys. It is filled with Timothys who want to learn, who want to grow, but they need adults to pour into their life. The effectiveness of our youth ministry here at FAC is dependent on the amount of adults we have investing in the lives of our students and our teenagers. And I would like to invite you to come along for the ride and present you with a unique opportunity. But first, I want to show you a video from our our current adult leaders, just explaining a little bit about what youth group is to them and their experiences that um, that they've had serving. And this will help you give a flavor of what it's like serving in the ministry. So take a moment to watch this video. My name is Leah Zabrowski, and I've been working with the youth group for a little over two and a half years. Ben Zabrowski, I've been serving in the ministry for, I believe, about two and a half years. Uh, my name is Heidi Meckley, and I've been serving in the youth ministry here at First Alliance for about two years. I'm James. I've been helping out since 2009. My name is Sarah Kazarowski, and I have been serving with the youth ministry for a little over a year and a half. Chelsea Hodges, and I've been serving in youth ministry for about two and a half years. Jennifer Cooney, and I've been serving for um, about two years. Um, I think my favorite part about serving with the students is just to interact with them one-on-one and be able to just make the relationships and also just to see them grow in their faith from a lot of the times from when they're middle school up to high school and just seeing them able to serve God in just their own unique ways. I just like coming in and uh, when I come into youth group, all the, you just come in and you see all these smiling faces with all these kids coming in. Uh, they're just running around having a good time, uh, looking like, they almost look like they're going to destroy the place, but they, they're just having such a good time doing it. I have many favorite memories, but um, the one that sticks out is we went on a fall retreat and I was guarding a container to pass out to the youth students. And I was down in the mud all by myself and it was completely dark and the kids had to go through one of the, this guard that wouldn't let anybody pass, but they took their time to come find me and see me and sit with me because they knew I was scared and alone (laughs) and to talk. I think my favorite memory is um, the sleepover at one of the students' house last summer. It was just, it was really impactful for me to see the younger middle school girls interacting with the older high school girls, even though they didn't know each other at the beginning of the night. And by the end of the night, we were all playing games, laughing, and it was cool for me to see that status wasn't an issue or age, and they were able just to have fun and make relationships. My favorite memory would have to be all the videos I've been forced to be in. Working with the, with the youth ministry has helped my walk with God in a lot of different ways. Um, my high school years for me, I, I carried a lot of baggage out of it as an adult, and it's given me an opportunity to deal with that in my own life while helping other kids going through similar things. And so it, it's brought its own challenges, but most of all it's just kind of made me um, open up to people in ways that I hadn't before because I needed to to be able to help the kids I was working with. Since working with the youth group, uh, 
God's really shown me that what a generation we're bringing up. You know, these um, students, I work mostly with the junior high and then I do a small group with the senior high. These students really love Jesus and um, they come and have a good time and they grow. They want to grow spiritually and they want to know more about their Savior. And that's just really encouraging for me um, to see that I'm pouring in their lives um, and that they do um, want to be better students. So William and I have served here in the youth group for two and a half years together. Um, and it's, it's been really nice because it gives us a chance to get away from our kids and, um, and serve together. Um, I also think that we tend to serve better when we work together because we complement each other. We work really well together and um, he knows my weaknesses and I know his weaknesses so it helps us to present um, a stronger front to um, to who we're ministering to because we can kind of steer things away that they wouldn't be able to do or say, well, he really could help you with that. So um, it also helps our, our marriage because serving together makes us have a stronger bond. Yeah, the awesome part about about being single and unattached while serving in a ministry, especially with teenagers, is I have a lot more available personal time for them. Um, you know, somebody has a crisis at 11.30, they're going to hesitate to call a youth leader that has little kids at home. They know, one, that I'm probably going to be up because I'm a night owl, and two, they're not interrupting my personal life when they do that. Um, so it creates a lot more opportunities for me to kind of help them in the moment when something's going on as opposed to them waiting till they think it's more convenient for me. Somebody should work in the youth ministry because it's awesome. We have awesome students in our church and they're a ton of fun. Um, I would say that if you're going to work with students that you need um, to have an open heart and open ears. They need your support and your encouragement and they um, turn to you for advice and just to vent to and do life with, you know, whether it's taking them out to Menchie's for ice cream or having a sleepover. Um, it's just, it's a time commitment, but it's definitely worth it. I would say not to be scared or intimidated um, if you've never worked with this age group, but to look at it as an opportunity to invest in the next generation. Because um, you never know just how God can use you in these kids' lives or even the impact that they'll have on your life. A lot of you uh, see me as the front man of the youth ministry here at church, but let me encourage you in the fact that the real work of the ministry happens behind the scenes with these adults that have poured into the lives of these students. And there were even some that weren't able to make it the day that we filmed um, that, that also pour in as well. Um, and, and we need help. We need more help because, like I mentioned before, there are Timothys out there that are longing to know Christ and his word, and you can help. In the fall, uh, we're planning on implementing um, what I call discipleship groups, D groups, on Sunday mornings, um, just s small groups of students. And my desire is that each group would have an adult pouring into three, four, five, six of them um, every Sunday morning, uh, just for an hour, for three, three times a month. Um, but we can't do it without more help. 
we can only do so much with the resources that we have. And so I would encourage you to prayerfully consider um, taking up that endeavor and speaking with me afterwards uh, or at a later time, um, leading a discipleship group, leading a small group of teenagers. And once again, it's not a huge time commitment. It's not much prep work. It's just you walking life with these students, pointing them to Christ, praying for them, praying with them, and living life together. And so if you're interested in leading one of these on your connection card, just write D group on the back of it and drop it in the offering plate, and I would be happy to contact you uh, next week sometime about what that would look like. And once again, I would highly recommend it um, because it's not just for our students, for the body. It's also great for you. The wonderful part about all of this is that as we go from generation to generation, we know that we're not in this alone. Verse 14 makes that pretty clear that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is with us to help us pass the baton. Sometimes it's easy to give up. Sometimes it's easy to feel um, like it's not worth it. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes there's frustration. This past Christmas, I received a gift from one of our families. Um, It was a picture frame um, with a picture in it, and on the bottom of the picture frame read Psalm 145, verse 13, which reads, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. How refreshing it is to know that there is nothing I can do, no amount of success or failure that I can have is going to screw up God's dominion through all generations. No matter what happens, God's dominion will reign generation to generation. Let's pray.